Going Linux, episode 318, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want to send us feedback, our email address is goinglinux at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Well, Bill is on the move again and quite busy with work, so just me for this listener feedback episode, and we'll get right into the feedback we've received over the past month. David provided us feedback on our feedback, on his feedback. Thanks, Bill, for your vote of confidence. I'm still a geek. Actually, I was a geek once, system programmer on IBM 370 in the early 70s, so I installed one of the first CICS systems in Canada. But then I went into management and later marketing, although over the years I kept returning to the mainframe environment writing JCL, assembler macros, and supporting COBOL systems, including Y2K and the Euro conversion. I believe that you, Larry, would be familiar with all these terms from yesteryear. Bill, you sound too young. Thanks for reading my lengthy letter, answering my questions, and giving me personal pride and honor. Much appreciated. I have read the article you provided and may eventually change my environment accordingly, but for now, all is working well, so no need to be a geek and take a screwdriver to the flying plane, as Tom was wont to do. And again, thanks for your great show, your help, and also your most kind comments on my writing and geek creds. Bestest, David, number one expat Canadian in Israel fan. Next, Troy has a word of caution for us. Hi, Larry and Bill. Just listened to episode 316, where you discuss disk-burning software for a Windows user, and Bill recommends using ImageBurn, I-M-G-B-U-R-N. While I love ImageBurn, and we install it on all new computer builds for our Windows users, I want people to be careful when doing this. Most installs of ImageBurn, including that on the software manufacturer's website, include additional spyware or PUPs. In the middle of the installation process, there are some links and or checkboxes that you need to uncheck so the software doesn't get installed on your system, along with ImageBurn. If you are running a good antivirus, we highly recommend Webroot, Secure Endpoint, or Avast Pro, for which we are resellers of both, those programs will tend to catch the PUPs in the middle of the installation process and will block them, thereby only allowing ImageBurn to install. Just wanted to throw in my two cents worth. Thank you for continuing to provide this most excellent podcast and keep up the great work, Troy, a.k.a. Jack Death. Well, thanks, Troy, and always wise advice to make sure that an installer 
of any program is not installing additional software. Not so much of a problem when you're installing it on an operating system like Linux, but certainly when you're installing something on Windows, uh, you need to take extra special caution because that's the operating system that these um, less than scrupulous software authors are targeting. Yeah, let's just leave it that way. We'll be polite. Next, Benjamin has a suggestion that sounds familiar. Hi, guys. Just thought I'd drop you a line to suggest Gecko Linux, Bill. This is a distro put out by one guy. He has lots of desktops to choose from. He has versions based on Leap, SUSE's non-rolling release, and Tumbleweed, their rolling one. GeckoLinux.github.io is the website. Nice podcast. Thanks. Well, thanks for the suggestion, Benjamin. I think Bill and I both mentioned it in our last episode, and I know that your email is the one that we were referring to, so thanks. Charles next asks why there are no standard drivers for Linux, like on Windows. Hello, folks. I've been listening to various Linux podcasts for the last six months or so, and I commonly hear the bashing of Windows. I'm not a Windows apologist. Believe me, I have issues with Microsoft and the Windows platform. I use Linux, Mac, and Windows at work and at home. Several months ago, I was doing a lot of distro hopping, and I kept running into display and wireless driver issues. I googled for resolutions to these various issues and would try some of them. Some of the resolutions would work, some were inconsistent, and others would just fail. In many of these Linux podcasts, I hear a lot of discussion about advanced issues with Linux. When I say advanced issues, I'm referring to things like upgrade or update mechanisms such as flat packs, snap packs, etc. These issues are important and should be addressed. But what about the basic Linux functionality for greater adoption? Wireless, sound, printing, and video drivers are core functions for computing, wouldn't you say? Why isn't there an open source, collective group or groups working on these issues? It's 2017, and there isn't a, quote, standard wireless driver, unquote, that consistently works on Linux as an example. Don't you think that consistent user experience for Linux adoption would be greater if wireless sound, printing, and video just worked? Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I just don't get it. Your thoughts. Regards, Charles. Well, thanks for the feedback, Charles. And I know a lot of our listeners are probably a little more in the technical flow of drivers than I am, but at least let me give you my two cents worth on this. Linux drivers, unlike Windows and Mac, are actually part of the kernel for the most part. And for the most part, what you've been experiencing in distro hopping is something that the average Linux user who has settled on a specific distribution is not going to experience. Having said that, if you've settled on a single distribution and you have a new computer or an old computer that you're installing that distribution on, you may have to do a little bit of work to get the driver to work with your particular hardware, especially if we're talking about Linux Wi-Fi hardware that's from companies that don't support Linux all that well. So for example, 
Wi-Fi cards from Broadcom are notorious for having issues. And part of this is because of the proprietary nature of Broadcom cards and the proprietary nature of the drivers that Broadcom provides for Windows and doesn't release the information for the development of drivers by the Linux community. And they certainly don't provide their own drivers in support of Linux. So, and I don't want to paint Broadcom with a uh, very wide brush here because some of their cards work just fine with the community-supported drivers, and yet others are very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get to work with Linux. And the same is true for a lot of the lack of support for drivers for some hardware. That is, when the manufacturer doesn't explicitly support Linux or make their designs open source so that the Linux community can develop drivers on their own, it's very difficult to reverse engineer these things to make them work. That's one of the reasons why uh, we here on the Going Linux podcast, uh, when asked about purchasing hardware for running Linux, uh, we always recommend that you stick with the known Linux-compatible manufacturers and, if possible, uh, to purchase hardware that has Linux pre-installed on it, like from Entraware or System76 or other manufacturers of that type, where they have selected the hardware that they provide and sell to you specifically because of its support for Linux, its known support for Linux. And when they preload Linux on there for you, they provide the drivers that you need uh, and oftentimes are tweaking their installation of Ubuntu or whatever Linux distribution they install to make sure that it works perfectly when you receive their hardware. Having said that, that's not the way uh, many Linux users are using Linux on their own computers. They're using existing computers manufactured by Dell or Lenovo or Acer or Asus uh, and so on, um, and perhaps some lesser-known manufacturers as well, and attempting to get Linux working on there as well. Uh, each distribution also may take a stab at improving the drivers, especially uh, if they have support specifically for uh, some manufacturers hardware as part of their initiative and with that in mind the problems that you see on let's say OpenSUSE are not necessarily the same problems you see on Ubuntu or Linux Mint or Red Hat and so when you are distro hopping you end up having different solutions for the same problem or uh, different problems with the same solution in some cases as well. And it's the nature of open source that makes it so that there are these kinds of compatibility issues, quite frankly. And if hardware manufacturers would open source their drivers or at least make the source code available for the Linux community to develop drivers if they don't want to spend the time and effort to develop drivers for Linux on their own 
things would be much easier and probably a lot, a lot more consistent from distribution to distribution and hardware to hardware. But that's not today's reality. We can strive to make that reality in the future, but that's really up to the individual companies that support these hardware drivers. Uh, having said all that, those drivers that are provided as part of the Linux kernel, so any Linux you install will have those drivers, uh, as long as you're using a most recent kernel, you can be assured that your hardware that is Linux compatible is going to be supported by the drivers provided in the Linux kernel. And you don't have to go out and look for drivers as a rule. So the recommendation for most Linux users of modern Linux distributions on new or old hardware is if the drivers work out of the box, great. Thumbs up move on. If they don't, many distributions these days provide as part of the installation or immediately following your installation, offer a proprietary driver where it's available. Now your choices there are stick with the open source version and if it's working just fine, then there's really no need to uh, install the proprietary driver offered by your Linux distribution. The other choice is if you are a gamer, for example, and you have the offer of a proprietary driver for your video card, and you think there are going to be some advantages on using the proprietary driver to eke the best uh, performance out of that card for your gaming experience, then go ahead and install that proprietary driver when it's offered to you. Similarly, if you have problems with your video card or other cards that may have uh, proprietary drivers offered for them, go ahead and install the proprietary drivers to fix those problems and you're good to go at that point. The next recommendation is if none of that fits your particular situation and you still have some hardware that's not compatible, First, look within the distribution's repositories, their software center, their software boutique, their software library, whatever they call it, to see if there is a proprietary driver offered there. And if it is, install it from there because it will be uh, already tested with your hardware for the most part and uh, tested and known to work. That's why it's offered in the software repositories. Uh, so that would be the next choice. And the final choice would be to find a solution on a forum, uh, which may involve going to uh, the hardware manufacturer's website to find a Linux compatible driver if one exists uh, and or doing some configuration manually to make your driver work. That's probably the last resort for the average Linux user and certainly for a new Linux user is to go into that kind of a configuration effort. So that's kind of the recommended order of things. And if that still doesn't work for you, we have hardware compatibility lists. There are several available out there. 
in various forums and on the internet for Linux compatible hardware. And in some cases, the hardware flat out will not work, will never work. Uh, the, there is no driver that's compatible with Linux. And uh, unfortunately for some hardware out there, that is the case, just as it's the case that some hardware just doesn't work with Windows or just doesn't work with the Mac operating system. Uh, there is that kind of hardware out there. Some of it is just too old, or in some cases, it's just too new to have a driver available. And if that's the case, oftentimes just waiting for that driver to be available for you is the best solution. Uh, maybe not the optimal solution for you, but one that might work. Um, so if you have some thoughts and would like to contribute some ideas to our listener, Charles, feel free to get in touch with us by email or on the forums and um, give us your feedback. And thanks, Charles, for the email. Next up is an email from Paul who has a question, Mint 18 or 17.3? Paul writes, Hi, Larry and Bill. Thanks so much for bringing so much help to the Linux community. Can you please bring me up to date on the Linux Mint 18 network manager wireless connection issues. I've looked through articles and found the problem mentioned and workarounds, but nothing regarding any solutions for the problem. It seems the problem could be solved with a post-release update since there are no issues with wireless connectivity using Linux Mint 17.3. I'm building a Linux Mint 18 box for my relative. She depends on a wireless connection even on her desktop. I haven't installed a wireless adapter yet. If the issues have not been resolved, I will reinstall Linux Mint 17.3 before I ship the machine to her. Please let me know if you have heard anything about this issue. Thanks again, Paul in North Texas. Well, we have actually answered Paul directly, so he hasn't had to wait for uh, our response, and he has this information already. But um, essentially, the response was this. As far as we can tell, Paul, the Wi-Fi issues that plague Ubuntu derivatives including Linux Mint 18, have not been permanently resolved in Mint 18. I'd go with 17.3 for now. It's a long-term support version that will be supported until 2019. And with a couple of years of updates and support left, that will give Ubuntu and Mint a bit longer to fix the Wi-Fi issues and get another long-term support release out there. If a release fixes the issue prior to 2019, you can always upgrade the installation for your relative at that time. And that is our recommendation. And in fact, Paul uh, responded back and said that he has taken our recommendation, installed 17.3, and will be playing it safe on the networking issue. Thanks again for the email, Paul. Mario congratulates us on 10 years. Hi, Larry and Bill. While writing the subject line like I was, congratulations sounds like spam email. <laughs> Seriously, congratulations for your 10-year anniversary. I haven't been listening to the podcast since day one, but I did download them all and listen to each of them while I was stuck in traffic going to work. Sometimes I was able to listen to more than two episodes. At least I was able to take advantage of that time. 
I've been listening to the podcast for the past seven years, and each month I'm waiting for the next podcast. I can't complain for waiting because I know it's a lot of work and you guys are not doing that for a living. We just need to be patient. Each month of patience gets rewards. How did I get to listen to your podcast? First, I was looking for a podcast that would help me getting information about Linux. That's nice. It's the main purpose of your podcast. I was such a WOS user. Since then, I am using Linux for home and work. I'm a bit like Bill. I do distro hopping to test and see if I like the new distros. But I always end up going back to a Debian distro. Ubuntu, then Debian, now Mint. I still need that other operating system to connect to some customer systems that I may need to work with. But as soon as I can, I rebuild that virtual machine and find solutions to be able to replace their VPN client running on the W system. Most of the time, OpenConnect does the trick. Thank you very, very much for your time. Topics are always interesting and still looking forward to next month's podcast. P.S. I'm so lucky now I no longer need to commute to get to work since I'm now working from home. Well, congratulations on the move to work from home, Mario. That's great. And thanks for being a longtime listener. And for those who haven't been a longtime listener, we often refer to Windows as the W operating system, as Mario has in his uh, in his email. Armin is also listening. Hi, he writes. I discovered your podcast a month ago and enjoy it very much. I'm excited every time I see a new one in my feed. I discovered Linux through BSD about three to four years ago and have full, fully transitioned my computers and my wife's CPU. I work for a cable company as a network engineer in charge of Doxis updates, installs, issues for our three-state region. When I started in this position... I was new to networking, and we had to use this free BSD CLI server as a gateway to then SSH into all the Cisco gear related to cable modems. All of our CMTs, routers, and switches are on private networks, so the free BSD server is needed to connect. Anyway, I got hooked on working in the command line because of that server, and now I'm completely converted to Linux. I still have to use Windows 7 on my work laptop. I was a distro hopper for the first two years, but Fedora 24 won me over. Currently, I'm using Fedora 25 on my Asus ZenBook UX305. Hmm, that's a nice light laptop there. I like that machine. It's a great distro, and I have no urge to change it. On my other laptops, I generally stick with Mint and Arch. Thanks for the great show. Well, thanks for the email, Armin, and thanks for letting us know about how you use Linux. Michael wrote, I have listened to several of your podcasts and have been using Linux for a few years now. What is the real difference between the different distributions? I daily use Mint, Ubuntu Server, OpenSUSE, and Kali, say monthly, and Raspberryan. Of course, the oddball out there is OpenSUSE. I like Yast, and Zipper makes it different than these other Debian distributions. But what are the real differences? I've used Fedora and tried out a lot of other distros as well. As far as I can tell, the only differences are rolling versus fixed releases and the package managers. There is, of course, the desktop environments, but that seems to be only the surface of things. 
They allow for the same window keyboard shortcuts as Windows 7, which I'm forced to use at work. If these really are the only differences, then why are there so many different distributions? It doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Then again, I'm in a town of 2,300 people and there are 11 churches to choose from. Maybe that's it. People like to have their own thing. Michael of Oklahoma, surrounded by cattle, as far as you can see, in both directions. Well, Michael, uh, you will likely have already listened to the previous episode where Bill and I discuss the differences between, or at least some of the differences between the Debian distributions and the distributions that are based on Red Hat and other package management solutions. And yeah, the Differences are in the package managers, and as you've observed, the desktop choices from distribution to distribution are also some of the differences that you can observe. And as you note, the desktop environments are more of a surface kind of differentiation, uh, although there are some significant differences in desktop managers and how they work and what features they offer and, and so on. So I hesitate to say that there are surface differences because those differences, even in desktop environments, can be pretty deep. And for the most part, the reason why there are so many Linux distributions is analogous to the one that you described with the 11 churches in a town of 2,300 people. Uh, everyone has their own preferences. Everyone has their idea as to how a Linux distribution should work. And because it's all open source, those people can take <laughs> the work that other people have done and tweak it to the way they like to see it work and offer that as a new Linux distribution. I'm oversimplifying, of course, but that's the basics. And that gives us a lot of choice. It gives us a lot of things to wade through to find out what the best one is for us. But uh, that's one of the disadvantages of open source software is there is so much choice. But of course, that's also the advantage. So there you go. I think you've got a good handle on it, Michael. It's all a matter of choice. All right. Our next email is from Amar, who writes, Hello, Larry. Congratulations to you and the Going Linux team on completing 10 years. I have been listening to only one out of these 10, but I have learned a lot already. Regards, Omar, co-founder of Kamakshi Media. And that's in India, I believe. We'll have a link to Amar's site. Thanks, Amar. Michael, another Michael wrote, Hi, Larry and Bill. Does the latest Mint Mate come with Orca by default? I did read somewhere uh, that I think it was 17.1 mentioned that it included Orca. I now have DVDs of both Sonar and Mint Mate to give me a bit of choice of distributions. I may need cited assistance anyway, as for some reason I still have not been able to boot a live Linux it could be down to the wrong keystrokes or timing when I try to enter the boot menu or both. Michael, just uh, as some feedback, I know you mentioned Mint Mate. I don't recall whether Mint Mate has Orca installed by default. I know Ubuntu Mate does. Uh, and in either case, I believe that it's not enabled by default. So when you begin your installation, it doesn't uh, come up with the Orca screen reader 
functioning right away, reading the screen to you. But there are some keystrokes to enable that. And if you go on the Mint Mate forum or the Ubuntu Mate forum and ask the question, I'm sure that you will get the answer straight away. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I know there's a keystroke or some setup uh, flag that you need to set on installation that gives you the Orca screen reader enabled by default. Okay, David wrote, cannot get Mate 16.04 to recognize screen resolution using VirtualBox, but Vanilla 16.04 does. Any reasons why? By the way, love you guys. Podcast, Windows 10 making progress, but when I retire, not too distant future, Linux, I'm all in. Okay, David, so... By the way you describe it, you just mentioned Mate 16.04 and Vanilla 16.04. I'm going to assume that you mean Ubuntu. Uh, and by Vanilla, you're talking about the version that uses the Unity desktop as opposed to the Mate desktop. Uh, I don't know why the VirtualBox installation wouldn't recognize the screen resolutions by default. That's a question I think you might ask on the forums and might actually have already been answered on the forums. Uh, it may be a virtual box support issue, or it may just be something with the desktop environment itself that causes that. I really haven't had any experience with that, quite frankly, so I don't have an answer. If anyone from our community does, please feel free to write in, as always. Michael needs some help. Hi, Larry and Bill. I've burned a copy of Sonar Linux after downloading it via BitTorrent using uTorrent and burning the image with InfraBurn. How do I boot into Sonar on my HP? I have tried both F8, F1, and Enter, and F7, and Enter, and although it reads the disk on boot up, I still boot into Windows. I took this information from the email receipt that PC World sent me. The model is HP 15-AB269SA. And in my response to Michael, I wrote, yes, uh, having that model number helps. According to the user manual for your model, and I provided him a link to the user manual for computers or tablets with keyboards, Turn on or restart the computer. Quickly press Escape and then press F10. Tablets without keyboards. Turn on or restart the tablet and then quickly hold down the volume down button. Or turn on and restart the tablet and then quickly hold down the Windows button. Then tap F10. Once you're in there, you should see settings that let you boot from other devices. I don't know how HP has implemented things, but you may have to disable Secure Boot before you can install Linux. And I provided him with an article that I hope has helped. It's an article from the Ubuntu community on UEFI. So good luck, Michael. Matt wrote, Hi, Larry and Bill. Great work on your podcast. I really enjoy listening to every episode. You have helped me greatly for years learn how to use Linux. I was just testing out a live stream on YouTube and decided to discuss my favorite podcasts and pick you as one of them. Keep up the great work. Here is my video to my live broadcast. Matt, MRP Tech Podcasts and MRP Tech Reviews. We will have a uh, link to Matt's video. And hey, what the heck? to his two websites as well. 
Uh, thanks for the feedback, Matt. It's great having a reference on uh, YouTube as well as uh, on your website. So thanks. Next, Anders suggests Lubuntu. Hi, guys. I heard Bill had problems installing Linux on an Asus netbook with Secure Boot. I had the same frustrating experience. However, I did eventually, too many hours later, find out after testing everything possible that Lubuntu 16.04 would install without complaining. I was then able to install Mate from the repositories. I have no idea what differs between Lubuntu and every other Ubuntu flavor that I have tried. That's most of them. Uh, that's one for you to explain. Thanks for your podcasts. I do enjoy them. Cheers, Anders in Stockholm, Sweden. Well, Anders, uh, I'm not sure what the technical differences are that would make Lubuntu install and Ubuntu not Mate not install. But your solution is a creative one that works and we'll certainly be recommending that to people who have problems installing Ubuntu Mate on their Asus netbooks going forward. Uh, again, that's one for the Ubuntu community. Ask there and see if they can tell you. There's probably something different in the installer itself in how they've implemented the installer. And you would think that it, they would use the same installer for Lubuntu as they do for uh, Ubuntu Mate, but they are different distributions and they do use slightly different processes in the installation. Uh, so that in and of itself could be enough of a reason to explain the differences, just the installer and how it's implemented. That's my thought anyway. Don't know if it's right. New listener Carl writes with a question. Hello, I just found your podcast and have been listening feverishly to it. Since I'm a Linux noob, I went to Mint as my first distribution of choice. And I must say, when coming from a Windows system, what kind of voodoo witchcraft is this? I mean, this operating system doesn't take up much space on my drive, doesn't bother me with annoying ads or reboots in the middle of working sessions to install some update. I'm looking at you, Windows 10. It just works, and I can play my Steam games on it. Is this some Faustian bargain that I've done when I get a computer that actually does what I tell it to do? Also, a question. Should I go with drivers from NVIDIA or AMD, depending on the graphics card, when it comes to graphics or finding other drivers that work better? Best regards, Carl. Well, Carl, welcome to the world of Linux. I know you're joking a little uh, with the Faustian bargain comment, but it's that very thought that makes it a bit difficult for us to switch users to Linux. It seems too good to be true, but as you found out, this is the exception to the rule. It really is as good as it seems. It's not perfect, but it's a much better alternative to Windows and Mac for many people. For average users and for users who game regularly, use the proprietary NVIDIA or AMD graphics driver, as I mentioned earlier on, if you have those cards, and especially if the drivers are available from the Linux Mint software repositories. The proprietary driver is usually provided by the card manufacturer and will have additional features that may improve performance. If you were not a gamer, I would have said that you might consider seeing if the drivers provided by the Linux Mint community work well enough before you go to the proprietary versions. And that's because they're specifically designed for Linux and 
designed by the Linux community. I think, though, that you might be happier with the latter because of your specific use case. I've had success with both strategies, but tend to use the proprietary drivers myself when they actually provide better performance, as long as the driver is available in the distributions repositories. I don't go looking for proprietary drivers on manufacturers' websites as a rule. With Linux, you don't need to do that. If it's available in the supported repositories, the Linux distribution supports it and makes sure it works well. If you use a driver, any driver, that's not in the repositories, it may not work perfectly. And if it doesn't, you'll need to seek help from the developer of the driver. And that may be less friendly than the support you'll get from a Linux distribution and its community. Thanks for listening, Carl. Jacobo wrote with a note about our last episode. Hello. First of all, sorry for my English. I have listened to no more than three episodes of your podcast, so forgive me if I mention something you've already talked about. I may have just missed it. I am not new to Linux, but I liked those three episodes, and they're helping me improve my English listening. In the last few years, all the distros I have used were Debian-based, mostly because I don't have so much time nowadays to try things, and I have had bad experiences with RPM many years ago. Recently, I heard good things about Arch and wanted to try it. As Arch is not an easy distro to install, I went with Antergos, which is a, quote, pure, unquote, Arch distro but with a really user-friendly installer, which even lets you get your system up with Steam working out of the box. The installation process is online only so you choose your desired desktop environment and you get a system with the, ver with the latest versions from the beginning. Bill had bad advice with Arch Bang, but I think he may want to give Arch a second chance. And Antergos may be a good way to go. I have had it installed for just a few weeks, but I'm happy enough to write this email in order to let you know about it. As I said, I just found your podcast a few days ago, but I like it. Keep it up as you've already done from 2007. Wow. Probably I'm not going to listen to your previous episodes from the beginning. <laughs> well, with uh, over 300 episodes to go back through, I don't blame you. And uh, you're welcome to listen to any of the episodes in the past that you find interesting. And you can find those on our website, of course. And you can listen right there from the website rather than subscribing if you prefer to do that. Finally, we have a gone Linux story from Joshua. He writes, Hi, I've been listening to the podcast for some time, and I thought it was about time I shared my gone Linux story. I had previously installed Ubuntu on an old netbook to try to give it a refresh, but it was not usable because Unity plus Intel Atom equals abysmal. So I was not yet convinced of the functionality that Linux could have until I tried it on a computer with some gusto. Fast forward a couple of years and a coworker of mine complained to me about a Windows 8 laptop breaking, something to do with the Intel RST, I think. I asked her what she was doing with the laptop and if I could get it to work if I could buy it from her. I created an Ubuntu Live USB and not only got the laptop working, but also recovered all of my friends' files. 
By the way, for someone who is used to a graphical user interface only environment, recovering files from the terminal makes me feel I'm from the 90s hackers movie. She was so grateful for the recovery of her files that she sold me the laptop for $60. I need to clarify, I got a Toshiba i5 Haswell touchscreen ultrabook for $60. I had to replace a battery and added 16 gigabytes of RAM and an SSD, but now this machine is a beast. Out of all computers that I've owned, this is by far my favorite. I really appreciate the article on optimizing Ubuntu for an SSD and have successfully completed all the changes on my laptop. Another change that I came across in addition to the changes you recommended is Profile Sync Daemon setting, which loads the web browser profiles into the temp file system to reduce writes on the SSD. One last thing, I hear you talk about distros frequently on the podcast, but you seem never to mention my favorite Ubuntu GNOME. Why is that? I like it because it's a very modern looking distribution that, although it's a bit different, is beautiful and very functional with an easy learning curve. Thanks for the great informational and entertaining podcast, Joshua. Thanks, Joshua, for sharing your Gone Linux story. And in answer to your question about why we don't mention Ubuntu GNOME, it's for the same reason that we don't mention a lot of distros. There are many, many, many distros out there, and we can't possibly mention them all. We mention the ones that we're familiar with and use on a regular basis or have used. Ubuntu GNOME is one of those that we don't look at on a regular basis, and maybe we should. Uh, I have used the GNOME user interface in the past, and I know that uh, they've done a lot of improvements to GNOME since I used it last. I think the last distribution that I used it on was probably Sonar Linux, so it's a little while ago, and I think it's time for me to take a look at it again. And I'll do that when I get some time. Thanks, Joshua. Well, that's it for our episode. We'll have another user experience episode as our next one. And until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast, Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. Theme music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.